Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name is Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you here. You're going to need to keep your Bibles over to Mark 8, and we're looking at that, the second half from verse 27. So how about I pray as we uh, look at God's Word this morning? Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your Word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we're at. Oh Lord, uh, give us a great picture, uh, a, a real picture, a true picture of Jesus, and help us to be changed as we've encountered him in your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On social media, I follow a lot of uh, different leadership gurus, and I was watching one uh, two-minute clip once, and he said, if you're a leader, if you want to do something in business or leadership or whatever, you need an elevator pitch. You, you need to be able to tell somebody in the space of an elevator ride everything they need to know about you. And he broke it down into three things. He said, in that maybe one or two minutes, you need to be able to tell people three things. Who are you? What you're doing or what you're about? And finally, what does it mean to be in your orbit, as he said? Or what does it mean to be in relationship with you? And, and I remember him talking about his elevator pitch. He said he's an entrepreneur. He's all on about being a billionaire. And thirdly, what does that mean? If you're in his orbit, if you're in a relationship with him, what that means is you will have a lot of money too. And I thought, man, that, that's really, really quite enticing for our world, right? But today, we're actually going to see Jesus elevator pitch. We're going to see him answer those three questions. Who he was, what, what he came to do, and what does it mean to be in relationship? Or what does it mean to follow him? And, and here's the thing. What we've, got to ask our question, uh, what we've got to ask ourselves is this. When Jesus defines who he is and defines his mission and defines what it means to follow him, are we on board with that? Because I think a lot of the time we like to think of what Jesus said and did, but we like to change it just a little bit to fit in with our lives. We don't like for him to fully set the agenda. But if Jesus is who he said he was, it is he who sets the agenda, not us. It is he who sets the agenda and not us. As as I said, we're going to see Jesus' elevator pitch. And here are the three points to Jesus' elevator pitch. Who was Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? Who was Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? Let's have a look at the first question. Who was Jesus in verse 27? Jesus and his disciples went on to villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Back in Jesus' day, there was public opinion on who he was. And notice what, what they say. First of all, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded. Is he, John the Baptist, come back from the dead? Or maybe some people didn't even hear about John the Baptist being dead. Maybe they just go, well, this Jesus is now John the Baptist or something like that. The, some, others say Elijah. A lot of people around Jesus' day believed that Elijah was going to come back before the Messiah did. So maybe Jesus is Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets, Jesus spoke with great power and authority. And he spoke from God's perspective. And so maybe he is one of the prophets. Around today, there are so many different opinions on who Jesus is. 
He was a bringer of love into the world. He was a teacher of great love. Maybe he was a healer. Maybe he was something else. Maybe he was a prophet. Maybe he was a social revolutionary. Well, what does Jesus? Th- who does Jesus think he is? Well, he goes on. Have a look. Verse 29. But what about you, he asks. Who do you say I am? See, Jesus is pushing, and I think Jesus is pushing them to say, who do you think I am? Not only because every individual needs to make a, a personal declaration who they think Jesus is, but there's a sense in which all the, all the things that the, the world was saying at that time, Jesus is saying, no, 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 they haven't got it. But because if, you know, Jesus really thought he was just a prophet, they'd go, oh, yeah, I'm a prophet. They got it right. No, but he's pushing more. And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are God's appointed king. You are the one that Israel has been waiting for. You are the one that is going to put everything right. That's what... Peter was thinking. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, oh, sorry, Peter, you've got it wrong. I'm not God's appointed king. I'm sorry. He doesn't say that. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why? It's not because he was ashamed of it. It's not because he disagreed with it. It's actually because he had an agenda, as we're going to see. He was going to Jerusalem and die. And as we get to him being in Jerusalem, he's more explicit about who he is so that it creates more tension so that he ends up on the cross. But now is not his time to be killed and therefore he says, hey, don't tell anyone about this. But one of the things that you've got to realize is that back in Jesus' day, there was a lot of people who actually claimed that they were the Messiah, God's appointed king. Uh, So many people in the 200 years before Jesus claimed to be the leader of Israel, the king of Israel. And so many people today now will will not say that they're the king, but they say basically if you align your life with me and my teachings, guess what, you're going to have a great life. But how do you know that they're legit? How do you know if Jesus was legit? How do you know he is who he says he was? It's hard to find a test to see if someone was legit. My favorite test I've ever come up, or not come up with, but ever heard of to see if someone was legit. I actually got over in Washington, D.C. I was over there for a conference. And I met a bunch of different people at this church who were ex-Army or ex-Navy or ex-Air Force, and now they're working at Capitol Hill. And I met this one guy, an ex-Navy SEAL. He was short. He did not look like like the prototypical Navy SEAL, but we were talking about it. And I said, oh, there's a lot of people uh, who are soldiers here. He goes, oh, not really. I said, what do you mean? I I said, I just met a bunch of people in the army, all this kind of stuff. He goes, yeah, but they're, they're not really soldiers. They're not really legit soldiers. And I said, well, how can you tell who's a legit soldier? And he said, all you've got to do is go to someone and say, oh, you've been in the army, you've been in the navy or something like this. And they say, yeah. You say, oh, so you can kill someone with your bare hands. And I was like, okay, but but what what question, like what's, what am I looking for? He goes, oh, you'll know. A couple of days later, I go back uh, to to Sydney and I go to my church and we've got two people in the army. One guy 
who has always stayed in Sydney. He's in spare parts, which is a really important job for the army. But I go up to him and I say, hey, you're in the army. And he goes, yeah, so uh, you can kill people with your bare hands. And he, and he told me for 15 minutes all the ways he could do it. And then I went to another guy who had just come back from Afghanistan. He was in the SAS. And I said, oh, so you've been in Afghanistan, SAS, you're in the army, so you can kill people with your bare hands. And he said, yeah, but it's a pretty inefficient way of killing somebody. And I was like, right then and there, I knew who, who the legit army person was, who really saw combat. It's the second guy. But how do you know if Jesus is legit, right? How do you know if he's really the Messiah? Well, here's a test. Jesus is going to predict his death and resurrection, as we see in this passage. But Jesus not only is going to predict his death and resurrection, but he's going to die and rise again. The fact that he rose again from the dead actually says that he is the Messiah. He is God's appointed king and he's the king of our lives. See, his resurrection shows that he is who he said he was. And therefore, the question is, are you seeing him as the king of your life? Is he your appointed king? Because he's God's appointed king. Well, that's who he was. But let's have a look at the second point. What did he come to do? And Jesus gives this answer in a very, very unexpected way. Have a look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, now, there's a kind of weird kind of contradiction of ideas here. First of all, did you see who he calls himself? He calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man we see in Daniel chapter 7, who's this great figure that is coming from God, who is going to judge the world. And yet, this Son of Man will suffer and die. And did you notice the word must there? It's not like it's kind of an accident. Jesus just doesn't walk into Jerusalem saying, let's love everybody. And people go, I don't like that. Let's kill him. No, Jesus comes on the earth with the intention to die. Jesus' death wasn't an accident, but he saw it as central to his vocation. He died voluntarily. And it's really important. That is really, really important because... You see, when someone gives up their life for somebody voluntarily, that shows a a number of things that we're going to see. But you ask, why, why why the word must? Why did he have to die? Here's three reasons, I think. First of all, love. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love for us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. The Bible says that we wouldn't know the fullness of God's love unless we saw Jesus dying on a cross, unless Jesus died for us. Think about it this way. I don't know if you've met people, or maybe you think like this, but you go, well, I'm not a Christian, but I believe in a God of love. When people say that to me, I ask this question. I say, well, how do you know that God is a God of love? If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe the gospel, that's fine. But how do you know that God is a God of love? What evidence have you got? See, if we go out to nature, do we see any evidence in nature 
that, um, that God is a God of love. I remember asking this question to, to, to a friend of mine. He was, a, he, he was an agnostic, but he believed that there is a God of, of love out there. He went on a bushwalk, and I said, well, did you see any evidence there that God is a God of love? He said, he said no, I just saw a bunch of animals actually killing each other. And I was like, how do, how do you get that from? How do you get from that to a God of love? But if God came down in the person of Jesus and died for you, then you know that God loves you. Then you have objective reality. You can look at all all the things in your life and you might think, well, how do I know God loves me? But you look at the cross and you go, there, I know God loves me. Brian Chappell, uh, a preacher, tells a story of him being in his first pastorate. He was in a a small mining town and there was a man in his congregation who, uh, when he was a teenager... Um, had had a horrific mining injury and it snapped his spinal cord and now he was an old man. And, he, and Brian Chappell went and visited him one time and uh, the man said, um, I see through this window my life going past. I saw my friends, they were walking past falling in love. Then I saw them walking past 10 years later with kids and now I see them walking past with grandkids. And Brian Chappell, as a young pastor, said, well, you see that. How do you know that God loves you? And the man said, every time Satan whispers in my ear, does God love you? I take him by the hand and I walk to a hill called Calvary. And I, and I point to Jesus dying for me. And I say, there, Satan, there is the objective truth that God loves me. And here's why that is important. Some of us here are going through really, really hard times. Maybe it's, maybe it's a time of loss. Maybe it's a time of uncertainty, time of frustration, you name it. And it's very easy to look at the object, subjective things that are going on around you and look at your subjective feelings or, or, or feel those things and go, does God really love me? But what Jesus would say to you is, I have proved my love for you by dying for you. That's how you know I love you. That's one of the reasons why Jesus had to die, or that word must is so important. Second reason, to forgive us. Forgiveness is very hard. A lot of people say, hey, why couldn't God just forgive? Like God calls us to forgive. Why doesn't he just go, oh, look at all our sin and forgive us? And I think when when people say that, I think what they're they're saying is, I don't really understand forgiveness because I haven't been really, really hurt. Or I have not really thought about how hard it is for me to forgive. I remember as a kid, I would walk down the same street to school every day. And there there was this older man, he would always be, um, uh, you know, watering his lawn. And every time I passed him, He said, I fought in the war for you, son. Every single time I saw him, I fought in the war for you, son. I fought in the war for you, son. I fought in the war for you, son. And it kind of gave me a little bit of a complex. But a couple of years later, well, a number of years later, when I was the youth minister at Maury Anglican Church, I invited him along to church. I said, I was preaching, why don't you come? And I was preaching on forgiveness and loving our enemies. And I can remember him shaking my hand at the door with tears in his eyes. And he said, 
after I preached a sermon on loving your enemies and forgiving them, he said, you don't know what they did to us. And he walked away. Now, I can only imagine what he means by that. But we all get this sense that he is saying, don't you realize how, for- how hard forgiveness is when you've been really, really hurt? See, the thing is, God has entered into relationship with us and he has decided to become vulnerable. He decided uh, to be, to, to set up a world where we have the choice and most of us have rejected him. And so what is he going to do with that? He can either punish us or he can deal with it himself. When Jesus dies on the cross, what is happening? Jesus is taking on the trauma of forgiveness because you and I know this, that to really forgive someone who's hurt us, we actually have to take that trauma on to ourselves because forgiveness means I'm not punishing you for your hurting of me. I'm going to deal with it myself. And when Jesus dies on the cross, what is happening right there? Jesus is forgiving us. He deals with our rebellion. He takes the punishment He does it for himself. That's the second reason why Jesus must die. Third reason. Did you notice who killed Jesus? Have a look at verse 31 again. He began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Now, I find that shocking, don't you? Jesus is not killed by the really bad people, the scum of the earth. He's actually killed by the good people, the religious people, the people who are in power. And I think there's a sense in which Jesus is showing that the systems of this world don't get him. The powers of this world, the powers that be, are opposed to him. The cross shows that the systems of this world to be corrupt and empty. And in condemning Jesus, the world's power was actually condemning itself. And so maybe you look at, look at our world and you just go, all these systems, all this politics and all this kind of stuff. And you're, looking, you're going, well, why doesn't it get Jesus? Well, because it's opposed to Jesus. And one day... Jesus is going to come back to deal with the corruption and the systems that are just opposed to him. And why is that really important? It's really important because there's some people in this world who have been really hurt by the systems and structures of this world. Jesus knows what it's like to go through that. But also, Jesus is the one who showed their emptiness, their vanity, And he says, in other parts in Mark's gospel, one day I'm going to come back to make everything new. And there's also also a really important rebuke here. Some of us, we're we're, we're actually desiring to be part of those systems and structures. We're, We're trying to get ahead in those systems and structures as our first point in our lives. And Jesus is saying, can you see those same systems and structures that same power, all these, good, all these so-called good people, they were the ones that killed me. Why are you giving your life for this? There's so much, something far more important to give your life for. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read the Gospels, one of my favorite people in the Gospels is, is Peter. 
is Peter. And he, here's why. I don't know about you, but do you ever get caught out where you say something that's the first thing in your first thing that goes through your head without going through a filter? I do. That's what Peter does. And Peter does a lot. And here's what Peter does here. Jesus, in verse 32, spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The word to rebuke there is the same word that Mark uses when Jesus rebukes one of the demons. It is a very, very harsh rebuke. In Matthew's Gospel, Peter says to Jesus, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. I mean, you can say never, you stupid twit, but never, Lord, it doesn't really work, does it, right? But do you see what Jesus says? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, same word. Get behind me, Satan. And you think, man, that's hard. That's harsh. But can you see, if you take those three things that the cross is, cross is showing us, that God's love is proven, that our forgiveness is won, and that the, the systems and structures of this world are empty, can, can you see why Jesus is so harsh to Peter? And can you see why he says, hey, you don't want me to die? That's actually satanic. Because what does Satan want? Satan wants you to doubt whether God's love, God loves you. Satan wants, to, wants you to doubt whether God forgives you. Satan wants you to, to think that the powers of this world are the things that rule and reign and not God. And so there's a sense in which, yes, if you deny that Jesus came to die as the first priority, that is satanic because you're actually kind of serving what Satan wants us to believe. But Jesus died to show us great love. He died for our sins to forgive us. He died so that we would not trust the powers in this world. But here's the question. Well, what does it mean to follow him? Have a look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, now we read that and I think it loses its rhetorical force because uh, so many of us now wear a cross. So many crosses are around in, in music and everything like that, that they're everywhere, Right? And yet, in the first century, this was mind-blowing. This is, this is offensive. This is a bit like saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Pick up your implement that's going to kill you and follow me. Can you get how extreme this is? This is not a nice, comforting thing. This is something to say, hey, do you realise... How, what, what following me really costs. And, and he goes on, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The, 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 there's one really offensive term, one really offensive word that we don't like in our world. Did you see it there? It's deny. We get told all the time, hey, just live for yourself. Don't deny yourself anything. In fact, if anyone says you should deny yourself something, you should cut them out of your life. But Jesus says, no, if you want to follow me, guess what? 
You deny, what do you deny? You deny yourself. You deny yourself. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you give up your hopes and dreams. You give up your way of living. You come and follow me and I will give you my hopes and dreams for your life. I will give you my way that you should be living. That's very different from Western Christianity, isn't it? Because in Western Christianity, we just want a Western life with a bit of Jesus bolted on. What we want, oh, well, Jesus, gives me, give me, you know, three kids, white picket fence, a really nice life, everything, and give me heaven when I go, too. And yet Jesus is saying, actually, all those dreams around what you want in your Western, your Western dream, you've got to give them up to follow him. Now, that's really, really confronting, isn't it? Very confronting. One of the things that I've been praying this week as I have been um, reading this, because when I hear myself say, Hans, you've got to give up your dreams and your hopes and you've got to just trust in Jesus and he will give you, give me, his dreams and hopes for me. I just find that extremely confronting. In fact, I don't like it at all. You know? Maybe you, you heard that and you go, oh man, I love that. That's great. Well, guess what? Can you, can you pray for me? I've been praying this. I've been praying that God would help me not love my dreams and my hopes for my life. That he would give me his dreams and hopes for my life. That I would not want the typical things that our world offers, but I would want his dreams and hopes. I had a conversation with one of my kids um, yesterday and she came back from, from a friend's, right? And she was going, Dad, why do we live in such a small house? I said, that's not small. And she's going, oh, no, no, compared to this person, compared to this, compared to this person, you, you know, we live in a small house. And it was interesting, as I was kind of arguing back against her, I was like, wouldn't it be nice to live in a great mansion, like, you know, eight, eight bedrooms, whatever, right? You know, you know, my kids can have a bedroom and each one of my guitars can have a bedroom. It would be just great. You know, that kind of thing. That's what I'd be thinking, right? And it was interesting, even though I was arguing against my daughter, um, the, the influence of the world, my hopes and dreams were coming into forefront, at the forefront of my mind. And yet Jesus is saying, once again, if you want to follow him, you deny yourself. You deny yourself. And you follow me. Why? Because eternity is on the line. Verse 35, have a read of it again. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I think what he's saying is if you grab a hold of your life and, and, and you think your life is so precious that, that everything that you've accumulated, everything that you've done in your life, if you think that, you're actually going to lose it because you're putting yourself and your life at the center of the world, not Jesus. Jesus is saying, don't believe the Western myth that this life is all there is. See, it's a bit like this. This is just 
uh, a guitar chord, but I want to I show you something. I wanna, I'll illustrate it like this. I want you to imagine that this silver bit right here is, is your life, right? And this black bit is eternity. And, and so what we do is in our lives, we're like, okay, this bit I'm a child, this bit I'm going to study really hard, and then I'm going to raise kids here, and you know, I'm going to retire right here, and I'm going to really live this bit of my life. And when I do that, I've forgotten about eternity, I've forgotten that I will be here for millions of years. I may be here for 80, maybe 100 if I'm lucky. If you're like my dad, 62, 63. And yet I will, eternity is how long? Eternity, forever. And Jesus is saying, how dumb is it to really live your life on this earth just for this and forget about this. Think about all your money. And go, oh, well, well, all my money, I'm, look, I'm going to be generous. Don't get me wrong. But, all, but really, it's all about this. But I'm going to forget about this. All my time, I'm going to just, I'm just going to think about this with my time. But I'm going to, it's all about this. Jesus is saying, live your life here so it impacts this. Give up your life here and you will get this. Keep your life here, you will lose this. And my, my concern, I see this in my, my life too, right? My concern is that what we do so much and what, what I do so much is I'm so taken by the world that I, that I just live for this. I don't live for this. I'm wondering if there's areas of your life that you are living just for yourself, for your hopes, your dreams. And Jesus, I think he's saying, you're actually in danger. Jesus is saying to me, Hans, when you were thinking about having a really large house as one of the main things in your life, Hans, you're really in danger. You're really in danger. But because this life is not all there is. In fact, this life is so short compared to eternity. Jesus, once again, is saying this. If you want to be his disciple, you must deny yourself. Pick up your electric chair and follow him. For whoever wants to save their life will lose, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. He goes on, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? You ever thought about that? Well, imagine what's your world. Maybe, maybe it is a really great family, really great you know, job, all that kind of stuff. Imagine you get all your dreams, all your dreams. Jesus says, what's the point of having all your dreams and yet going to hell for eternity? It's ridiculous when you think about it. Jesus is saying, don't, don't exchange your soul for your dreams, for the dreams of this world. It's such a bad, bad trade. One of my, one of my kids took a toy to school and traded it with one of his friends, and he came home 
with a toy that was worth probably 10 times as much as the toy he traded. He thought that was a great thing. We said, no, you've got to trade it back because that was a bad trade for your friend. He's meant to be your friend. See, with a toy, you can trade things back, right? Jesus is saying, when it's all over and done with, you can't trade your life back. Eternity is there and it's real. And here's the beautiful thing. If you give up your life for Jesus, he promises you the life that you should always be living. Jesus came to give you life, John 10.10. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and your and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life keep nothing back nothing that you have not given away will be really yours nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred loneliness despair rage ruin and decay But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. You look for happiness in this world, you're not going to find it. Jesus says, and C.S. Lewis, I think, says also here, if you trust in Jesus, give your life to him, you will find what life is really about. You'll have a life of joy, of meaning, of purpose. But some of us are saying, hands, well, this is just too much. Jesus is asking too much. But, but, but remember, this is the Lord of the universe who created you. This is the Lord of the universe who died for you. Is there anything too much for him to ask of you after he's done so much for you? The answer is no. Here is God's appointed king who's given up everything to save you. He's asking to, for you to give up the life that he's given you. Give it back to him. Live for him. And receive the life that you were truly meant to have. What do you think of Jesus? We've heard Jesus' ele- elevator pitch. We've heard who he is, what he, ca- what he came to do. And what does it mean to follow him? How are you going to respond to that? Let's pray. Father God, these are some tough words from Jesus at the end. Lord, I pray that we would not walk away from here forgetting these words, but we will feel the weight of these words. And not only feel the weight just for today, but we will make changes in line with those words. Lord, help us, and I pray this for me especially, that you would help all of us not live for the dreams of of this world, but we will give up those hopes and dreams up to you and you would give us new ones where you're at the center of our lives. We're honoring you more than anything. Lord, help us not to live just for this life, but live for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
we're going to sing our last two songs.